0: Uh, are reading through John chapter 6. It's so much. uh, John 6 is one of those pivotal uh, soteriological passages. Soteriology is the the, uh, part of theology that deals with our salvation. How are we saved? What did God do so that we could be saved? And how do we apprehend that salvation? How do we take hold of that? And so, I want to jump right back into John six this morning and refresh our memory regarding this situation in this chapter. Remember that Jesus had said to the crowd, "Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. That was back in verse twenty seven of chapter six. and we took note last week that Jesus, was exposing the motive of the people's hearts here. They were filled. They had been filled. Literally, the, in the Greek, the word is gorged. They had gorged themselves on that miraculous bread that Jesus had multiplied. And their temporal needs, the needs of this life in this world, those, those needs were, just, just for, a, for a brief moment, they were fully met and, uh, and yet, this crowd continued to ignore their pressing spiritual needs. How many people do you know in your world, in your immediate sphere of influence, that, man, they're, they're pursuing that necessary daily, oh, I got to get my needs met, but they're neglecting the spirit, neglecting the life and the spirit, right? So, so they continue to ignore their spiritual needs that could only be satisfied by embracing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And then, and then just a few verses later, Jesus tells them, he says this in, in verse 33 of chapter 6. He says, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He's talking about himself. And that's right in line. If you remember back in Matthew 5, when we went through the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus had said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what? Righteousness for they're the people that are going to be satisfied. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, which is one of the attributes of God, who he is, you're going to find yourself satisfied. And so the Father's will was for Jesus to come down from heaven, train a group of select Israelites, those who are given to him as his apostles, and they were going to carry the gospel to the rest of the world and establish the church after, after he raised from the dead after he's resurrected and after he's ascended back into heaven, that's when all the disciples have been deputized and they go. And, and I also want us to remember this morning, one of my favorite phrases, uh, a text without its context is a pretext for a proof text. We, remember we talked about this last week as well. Any text you read, especially in the Bible, without its surrounding context, what comes before and after, that's a pretext for you to make it say whatever you want it to say, to be a proof text. So context gives us the historical setting, tells us who the audience was, helps us to understand the intention of the author. And this is why we've been reading through the Harmony of the Gospels, because as we started, the further we get along, the more context we have to the ministry of Jesus and what's happening in, in that day. And so, the, so think about it like this. The Old Testament is what gives context to the Gospels. And then the the Old Testament and the Gospels are what gives context to the New Testament. And so if you've you've never read through the Bible, it's not too late. We're still in early January. We've just started our reading plan for the year. You can jump in. I would highly recommend that you find a one-year Bible reading plan and start today. It's not too late. You can catch up. You can, you can go back and amend your daily reading and catch up. The, our women's ministry is doing this. Our elder team is doing this. The men's ministry, I hope you guys, I hope the guys are doing this. Uh, if, you, if By the way, men's ministry, guys in the room, get on the app and come to the men's ministry page. Uh, it's mostly just me and CJ talking to each other every week, every day. I'm like, I love, uh, you're on there, Eric? Okay. So come, come on, c- comment. Comment as you read. So that we can be together, as we do this. Um, Yeah, I'd I'd love to hear. I'd love for you to join that conversation. And by by the way, you just got a personal invite from the pastor of the church. So what are you waiting for? Right. Um, So so now I want you to know that every ministry, as as part of this uh, context of what's happening, John, that applies to the church, the capital C church as well. Every ministry faces difficult seasons. It's a given. There are times of plenty and times when that ministry or church is influencing uh, the people around them and and making an impact on the community. And then there are times when those same churches, same ministries go through times of want and need and of things being in a downturn. It's, It's just the way it is. And it's a universal truth that all churches and ministries inevitably experience the loss of members and supporters. I mean, we see it in the text here. There are people walking away from Jesus. I mean, he's here on earth, in the flesh, in person, and there are people walking away from his ministry. And so if, if, if you just need to know, like if any of you are called to full-time ministry, if that's in your future, this is a reality you need to embrace sooner rather than later. You will have people leave. You will have people walk away. And um, and, and so, yeah, if you, you just need to embrace that reality. Generally speaking, pastors and leaders don't usually find themselves in a position to actively drive people away that's not something we generally like to do it does happen from time to time but here in John 6 this appears to be Jesus's approach at this moment in this context and um and 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 so we need to ask the question why we and we talked about this last week a little bit but evidently Jesus didn't read some of the books out there on spiritual leadership and church success I I just he, he clearly didn't read those and um As John 6 opens, you know, Jesus has 5,000-plus people following him and listening to him. His crowd was probably closer to 15,000 with the women and children. But he's got all these people following him and listening to him and listening to him speak. And by the time that this chapter closes, he's down to 12. He's down to just 12 guys, and one of them is going to betray him. So to the casual observer, this does not look like ministry success. So, so let's go to John 6. Let's see how did Jesus handle this situation. And we're picking back up in the text in verse 45. We've, we've gotten all the way to 44 last week, and so now we're starting verse 45. If you weren't with us last week, you can go back and watch that uh, online and get caught up. Verse 45, Jesus is the one speaking here, and he says this. It is written in the prophets... And they will be taught by God. Now, if you are an avid student of Scripture, and you all should be, then the question immediately comes to your mind where is that? Where does it say that in the Bible? Which of the prophets said that? Well, I'll give you three Isaiah 54, verse 13. Listen to this. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. That's great. Jeremiah 31, 34. This is what the prophet Jeremiah says, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and teach his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Listen to the Prophet Micah. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established As the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted above the hills, and people shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the house of the Lord, to the mountain of the Lord, and to the house of God, the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So all three of these prophecies are still future. They deal with the millennial reign of Christ on the earth, coming to a earth near you very soon, I think. Um, one of his jobs is to lead us into all truth, so there's this very real sense in which we are a part of the fulfillment of these prophecies, even at this moment, but not fully in what Christ intends in that millennial 1,000-year reign on the earth. So we'll keep going here. That's a whole other topic for like four or five sermons, but... Uh, Verse 45, the second half of verse 45, Jesus is speaking and he says, Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father and he's talking about himself, right? The the problem is nobody can see the Father and live, not in this present life. If if you could just get a, a millisecond glimpse into heaven and see, the father seated on his throne, you'd be dead. You couldn't handle it. His righteousness, his glory, his goodness, his perfection would be too much for us. And we would just be dead. We'd be leveled. Exodus 33, 19 and 20. And he said, this is God speaking to Moses here in the text. He said, I'm going to make all my goodness pass before you, and I'm going to proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I'm going to be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I'm going to show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But then the Lord said to Moses, oh, and by the way, you can't see my face because man shall not see me and live. Nobody can look at God and live. And so if you remember the story, he had to put Moses in the cleft of the rock and put his hand over it as he passed by. So the Moses only saw the back. He didn't see God face to face. He'd have, he'd have died. See, not even Moses, this great patriarch and prophet of the Old Testament, could look upon the Lord and live. We're going to need new bodies to be able to look upon the glory and radiance of God. I don't know about you. I'm excited for a new body, right? Some of you younger folks are like, I'm fine. I can run. And, and, and the rest of us are like, ah, new bodies. I can't wait. Um, they're going to be... It's going to be awesome. I just can't wait for that. Um, but did you know, when we talk about this, looking at God, seeing God, there are some false prophets down through history who contradict Scripture. Did you know that Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, claimed to have seen God the Father and Jesus together? Yeah, it didn't happen. He would have done well to study his Bible more before concocting a false religion. Um, only Jesus has seen the Father, and only Jesus represents the Father perfectly. Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that Jesus is the exact, exact representation of the Father. And this is why back in the Gospel of John, in, in John fourteen nine, Jesus says, hey, guys, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We're not the same person, but, but we're, the, we're, we're one. We're, what he does, I do what he's like, I'm like. So if you've seen, if you've seen me, you, you've seen the father, you met, you met my dad, you, you know what he's like, okay? So, so we just keep rolling with the text here in John 6, 47. Again, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. And then Jesus says this, he says, I am the bread of life. In other words, I am the sustenance that you need spiritually. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. (laughs) This is the crowd that ate all the bread, the miraculous bread, just in in the feeding of the 5,000, right? And now he's using the Exodus wanderings and the the giving of manna from heaven to illustrate a point. It was all temporal. It was all temporal. Your, Your fathers, your forefathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. Verse 50, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. So he's he's drawing a contrast. He said, everybody who ate the manna, they're dead. Been dead a long time. But those who eat the bread of life that Jesus is offering will never die. We go back and summarize a little bit of last week. We talked about this a little bit, but we believe that Jesus, just for context, is only revealing his identity this reality to his closest followers. And right now, remember, he's hiding the truth from the rest of the Israelites, from the rest of the Jews. And we understand that Jesus is using parabolic language. He's speaking in parables. He's he's making it harder to understand. He's using parabolic language in order to blind the self-righteous Jews of that day from recognizing him for who he is. They're long away to Messiah. And that and that alone is the reason that his jewish audience was incapable of coming to him in faith at that time. And as i stated last week, there's absolutely no reason to believe that all of humanity is born morally incapable of coming to jesus due to some kind of incapacitated nature that's a result of what we inherited from the fall of adam. That's that's not i don't i don't believe that's biblical. That idea, when it's imposed on the text of Scripture, creates confusion in the minds of people, and I believe it contradicts the Word of God. So I'll, we'll go through the rest of the text here, and I think that you'll see this. Uh, verse 51, Jesus continues, and he says, I am the living bread. I, I'm the living bread, not the bread that you ate, the miraculous bread that I multiplied. I, I am the bread." from heaven. And if anybody eats this bread, he will live forever. And and the bread that I will give uh, for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, if you're a good Jew, you are scratching your head. Cannibalism? Are we supposed to eat Jesus? What is, what is he saying? This is, this is difficult to untangle and unravel. Well, we know Jesus is saying he's the bread of life, but what does that mean? The manna sent down during the Exodus wanderings, that was just a temporary physical fix for the people of God in their time of need. But Jesus is saying he is the permanent, eternal solution to our deepest needs. But the hardened Jews of that day, they can't see this truth. And unfortunately, many Jews even today refuse to see it. And then there's this bit about the bread of life being Jesus's flesh. What does that even mean? Eat my flesh, drink my blood. We'll come back to that in just a moment, I promise. But um, because that's caused tons of confusion down through the ages. Um, 52, we're gonna go all the way to 59 here. The Jews then disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, And I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down out of heaven, not like the bread that our fathers ate and died. Whoever eats and feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue and he taught at Capernaum. This is an incredibly difficult passage. Was Jesus a vampire? Aren't they supposed to drink our blood? And here's Jesus saying, I want you to drink my blood. I want you to eat my flesh. Right? What's, what's, hap- what's going on? What's going on here? Well, Jesus is speaking metaphorically, not literally. He's not inviting the people. He's like, come to me. If you eat my flesh and drink my blood. And so the crowd just swarmed him and began to like zombies just to take chunks out of his. No, no. This, this is metaphorical. It's not literal. But not all Christians down through the last 2,000 years have been able to see the correct interpretation or understand the larger context. Hence, we end up with different churches and denominations having very different approaches to this text and very different practices in their churches as a result of bad hermeneutics. There's a 50-cent there's a word for you, hermeneutics. Hermeneutics hermeneutics is the branch of knowledge that deals with interpretation especially when it comes to the Bible if you're going to read your Bible you need to know good hermeneutics you need to know how to interpret what you're reading I remember when I first began to read the Bible at 14 years of age I had no idea I was trying to read it every day and it did not make sense to me and it was stuff like this and I'm just like I, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't I just want to go to youth group and play volleyball Right, So this is, this is hard. And given that people are so prone to misunderstanding, especially in this section from 51 to 59, I need to take a little more time to deal with some bad theology, uh, in particular with the Roman Catholic Church and the Eucharist. Eucharist is a word uh, from the Latin Eucharistio, and it literally means to give thanks. In the Roman Catholic Church, it is an ongoing continual ritual sacrifice. So I, I realized this week, as I say those things, some of you will go, uh-uh, or that's not accurate, and I need to back up what I'm saying with with other sources that aren't evangelical. So here's what I've done. I spent a lot of time this week in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, the Catholic Encyclopedia, and reading through the Council of Trent. <laughs> overload. Here we find the following. In the Catholic texts, in the Roman Catholic Church, this is what they say. The Eucharist is referred to as a divine sacrifice, and it is efficacious. That word efficacious, you might hear the word effective It's part of that word. It works. In other words, it does what they claim it is supposed to do, and this is because, according to the Roman Catholic Church's catechism, which is the teaching tool, if you come, if you decide you want to be a Roman Catholic, you have to learn the catechism. That's all the doctrine and all the truths about Roman Catholic belief. And so, um, this this is because Roman Catholic catechism is, is it's the Eucharist, the, the sacrifice, the, the cup and the bread, with them it's a little wafer and it's, and it's wine, that actually, physically, literally becomes the body of Christ and the blood of Christ when the priest presides over it in Latin. That's their belief. It's, and it's referred to as the continual sacrifice of Christ. Now, <clears throat> when our kids were really young, we, we went to Savannah, Georgia for one of Jen's cousin's weddings. And she uh, had converted from Southern Baptist as a Protestant to Roman Catholic as part of her journey of falling in love with her husband and, and marrying him. And when we attended the wedding, we're in this really beautiful Roman Catholic church in Savannah, Georgia. And I don't remember which kid it was, but I remember getting a little tug on my sleeve. And, and I, I wish I could remember which kid. It could have been Noah. It could have been Ethan. Probably wasn't Abby. She was like two. I don't know. Um, she was thinking smart thoughts at that time, though. Um, <laughs> but I remember, whichever kid it was, grabbed, she can't tug, tug, tug. "Daddy, why is Jesus still on the cross?" And I thought, that is the most astute theological question I've ever heard come out of anybody. Why is Jesus still on the cross?" My kids were confused by the crucifix because the crucifix is bad theology. We didn't even, I didn't, you know, I'm not like we're sitting there for a wedding. I'm not going to delve into uh, what is the Eucharist with my five-year-old. So, uh, but let me, so let me explain this term more thoroughly for those of you who may be unfamiliar with this. In the Roman Catholic Church, the Eucharist is an ongoing or continual sacrifice of Christ. And many Christians want to simply equivocate the Eucharist with what we Protestants do, but this is not like our communion which we, we very clearly state is a remembrance of what Christ has done for us only. It's a remembrance for us. But the Eucharist is ongoing, and, and here's this word again, it's efficacious. It's working in the present tense. So it is a continual sacrifice of Christ. And if you're a devout Catholic, Roman Catholic, you will take the Eucharist many times over the course of your life because the wafer that the priest puts on your tongue, don't you dare touch it. By the way, you're not qualified to take that wafer. Only the priest can do that. He puts it on your tongue. That wafer is literally, physically the body of Christ. And the cup of wine, it actually is literally, physically the blood of Christ. That's what Roman Catholics believe. And so uh, in the Roman Catholic Church, these are the means of salvation, not Faith alone, by grace alone. See, folks, there's a reason why in the 1500s there was a Reformation. Okay, if you if you want to get out of purgatory and into heaven, you must partake in the Eucharist as a faithful Roman Catholic. Right, that's 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 their position as a church. So, according to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, here's the quote: In this divine sacrifice, which is celebrated in the Mass. The same Christ who offered himself once in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross is here contained and is offered in an unbloody manner. It is propitiatory. That, That theological word, propitiation, propitiatory means it removes sin. It removes sin. See, the only way to be saved in the Roman Catholic Church is to faithfully partake in the Mass and receive the Eucharist. And to all who deny its propitiatory nature, the Council of Trent pronounces anathema. Here's another word you need to know. Anathema is a curse. Anathema means, anathema means you're damned to hell for not believing the truth. So the Council of Trent would pronounce anathema on any who would reject um, this, this doctrine, okay? And it's a long uh, section here. I, I, won't, I won't read all of it. If anyone says that the sacrifice of the mass is only a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving or that it's just commemoration of the sacrifice that G- Jesus consummated on the cross, but not propitiatory, not a propitiatory sacrifice, or that it, it profits him who receives it or, or that it, it, ought, it ought not to be offered for the living and the dead sins. Then for all these reasons, for any of these reasons, if you if you don't, if you disbelieve their take on this, let him or her be anathema. Damned to hell, put out of the church. That's what anathema means. Cursed. But the Bible tells us plenty about the sacrifice of Christ. We don't need the Council of Trent. We have have the Word of God. Jesus' sacrifice was a once for all sacrifice. Listen to Hebrews 7. Hebrews 7, 26 and 27. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, Jesus, like those other priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Thank you, Lord. We skip down to Hebrews 10, verses 10, 10, 11 and 12. It says this, and and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, once for all, and that that every priest stands at his service daily, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. He said, "It is finished." It's done. It's complete. See, a continual or ongoing sacrifice is of no value at all. Hebrews 10.1, for since the law is but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of the reality, it can never, the law can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. You can't do it with the blood of bulls and goats and rams. You can't do it with the Eucharist. You can only do it with the blood of Jesus. And it's a once for all. Only Jesus could do it. It only took one time to make it effective for any and all who who call on the name of Jesus for salvation. And so verse 60, so when many of the disciples heard this, they were like, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to this? Who Who can make sense of Jesus saying, eat my flesh and drink my blood? Not everybody can handle the truth when it's presented. It, it can be confusing to people. Speaking of that, how do you handle difficult things when you encounter them in the Word? If you're reading through the Bible this year, you're going to come across some things. Where you go, well, uh, uh, uh. what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Can I give you a tip, pro tip? Um, not that I'm a pro. Uh, when you come across things in the Bible that you don't understand, I want you to, I want you to get in a notebook, just a spiral-bound notebook. Keep a journal. It's, it's just for this purpose. Here's what I want you to do. Write down the question that you have. I don't understand this. Write it down. Write the date and the time. And then close that notebook and go on. And pray. Just pray. Pray that day. Pray the next day pray that afternoon. Lord, show me. I don't understand this. Show me. Show me what this means. Just wait. Just listen. Wait to receive an answer from the Holy Spirit. It won't be some whisper coming into your ear on a breeze. Nothing, nothing like that. But here's what will happen. You'll hear something and you'll learn without grasping for it. You'll, hear, you'll be listening to a sermon on a a radio or online or you listen to something and you'll hear, the answer will come to you. God will speak to you through some other means. And then here's what I want you to do. When he answers your question, write it down. Write it down and and write the date and time that you got the answer. And now you've got a journal of God speaking to you. And when when times get hard and Satan comes at you and he's trying to discourage you, you just pull that thing out and be like, God talks to me, man. He speaks to me. He loves me. He wants to interact with me. Verse sixty-one, and we're all, we're getting close to the end. It's such a long chapter. But Jesus, knowing in Himself that His disciples were grumbling about this, He said to them, "Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before?" Jesus saying, "What are you going to do when I leave, guys? You having trouble now? Just wait till I'm gone." Jesus' origin is heaven. The ascension is what's in view here. It, it's a hard saying to be sure, but can the disciples trust Jesus to be true and to give them insight at the proper time? I mean, what about when the ascension happens and he, they see him go back into heaven? Jesus will have promised the Holy Spirit to them, but they're still gonna have to wait for that fulfillment of that promise. I see, will they be able to trust Jesus and wait patiently for the Holy Spirit? Will they be offended at his leaving them then as well? Also, if the shocking analogy that Jesus uses offends them, what do you think is going to be their response to the Passion Week and the torture and crucifixion of Christ? Some of these guys ended up running away for a little while and then coming back. They're really going to have to press into Jesus in the days ahead to cultivate faith for what's coming. And so so we wrap up here with 63 to the end. 63 it is the spirit jesus says who gives life the flesh is of no help at all the words i've spoken to you are spirit and life but there are some of you who do not believe for jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him i got judas in view but this is the answer to the question jesus is speaking spiritually he says the flesh profits nothing Hosea 12 in the Old Testament, I've spoken spoken unto the prophets, I've used multiplied visions, and by the ministry of the prophets, I've used similitudes. What he's saying is God's letting us know that a literal rending of the text can and should include figures of speech, which is what we've been seeing all through John 6, right? Jesus has been using figures of speech in 65, and he said, Jesus said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted to him by the Father. Now, at this point, Jesus has mentioned the Father's giving, drawing, and granting of people to come to him. The reason why no one can come to the Son unless it's been granted from the Father is because nobody knows the Son except the Father. So the Father gave the Son a message to preach which revealed the Son's true uh, revealed the son to Israel's true believers. And at the same time, that same revelation of Jesus while he was on earth also offended the unbelievers and the rebellious. I mean, God gets maximum mileage out of everything he does. And so the father sent his son to preach, a message to preach, which revealed the son to Israel's true believers while offending the unbelieving and the rebellious. And it's just as simple as that. Really, that's what John 6 is about. It's about Jesus revealing himself to those who actually believe and want to believe and want a Messiah and those who who have their own agenda. And the doors to the kingdom are going to be flung open once Jesus has risen from the dead, having completed the work that the Father sent him to accomplish. But until then, he's just working with this small group of guys. And so 66 and 67, after this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And Jesus turned and said to the twelve, Fellas, there's the door. You want to go? Do you want to go as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed, and we've come to know that you are the Holy One of God. I love Peter's resolve. There's no other game in town, Jesus. Where are we going to go? You can almost hear in Peter Like this deep sigh mixed with this stout resolution. Where where are we going to go? Jesus answered, verse 70, did I not choose you, the 12? And yet one of you is a devil. He's speaking of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. You know, sometimes the reality is that Jesus does say hard things and place us in hard situations And how we respond in those moments determines whether we honor God or dishonor God. It shows our maturity and our character. Our temptation is to look at a situation and let it become our focal point. And in doing so, when we focus on the situation, we lose sight of Christ. I think there's something deeply significant about coming to the place where Peter and the others are saying, where are we going to go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Yeah, this is hard, Jesus, but, but we're all in. And for us, I think there's a freedom there in that resolution that come hell or high water, we're going to trust Jesus, we're going to follow him no matter what. And, I, and I, that, that resolution, when it, when it roots down in our hearts, also what it does is it takes our eyes off of our circumstances and it puts our eyes on Jesus. And we need that because he's our anchor point. He's the place of trust and faith. We don't hope and wait for a change in our situation. We don't hope and wait for changes in our circumstances. We hope and wait for the returning of our king. And so church, listen, church is not a spectator sport. If you're going to take anything else away from John 6, this section of John 6, you need to know church is not a spectator sport. And go back to 66 and 67. It says, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And so Jesus said to the 12, do you guys want to go away as well? See, this is the difference between being a spectator and being on the field. Many churches that I know personally, many that I've grown up in, been a part of, have bought into the philosophy that they need to help Jesus and help his word by entertaining people and putting the burden to minister on the professional Christians instead of just Christians, just born-again people. And the conclusion that I've come to by listening to people all over the United States, I have friends in full-time ministry all over the country, and and in other countries as well. But here in America, the American church, uh, all these conversations have led me to, to... I've heard the same truths here from different people that we've become, the American church has largely become a spectator sport. See, like when, when, when we used to play football in my neighborhood or we'd play wiffle ball, all the kids played. We played together. Sometimes the dads would come out and play with us, you know, after they mowed the grass. Everybody played. When I go to see the Mariners... They never invite me onto the field, and I just can't figure it out. Church in America has become a spectator sport largely, not a pickup game where everybody plays and everybody participates, but a spectacle where the professionals engage and everyone else sits passively and watches. This was not Jesus's intention for us. Every born-again believer in Jesus is a priest and king of God most high. Do not think for one moment that you are not needed or you are not wanted in the church or that your gifts and your talents and your abilities don't matter. That's a lie straight from the pit of hell. They matter. They matter. On the contrary, you're here precisely because Jesus put you here and you are needed desperately. Your mission, should you accept it, is to infiltrate behind enemy lines and strategically demonstrate the love and power of God in places where other people work and live and play. This is, this is one of the effective ways, I think, that our enemy has kept us neutralized. He's kept the power and revelation of God out of the culture and out of society and just kept it just, just, just in church, just in church. We don't want to take that out there. People get spooked. People think we're crazy, I got news for you. They already do. They already think we're crazy. Church is not a game for professionals. Jesus taught us that. He taught us that. Who did he pick? The most bumbling crew of people you could have possibly picked. These were not Torah scholars who had given their whole lives and upbringing to studying the word of God. These were fishermen, blue collar, truck drivers, cow hands. You know, these, you know this is this what he worked with. We can't allow the leave it to the professional's mindset to take over the church. Church is very much a spectator sport. Everybody plays on this team. So if you're saved, you're on the team question for you this morning is what position are you going to play? If you're saved, you're on the team. Are you a shortstop, catcher? Maybe you're a basketball fan. Are you the point guard? Are you the forward? Maybe you're a football guy. Yeah? Are you the quarterback? What are you? What are you playing? What game are we playing? you got to wrestle with that. I want you to wrestle with that. If you're, if you're, if you're stuck there this week, call me. Text me. I want to help. I want to help you think that through. Here's the other thing I want to say our motives matter to God. Our motives matter to God. 1 Samuel 16, the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. He sees the motives of our hearts. God, God desires us, and He's always more interested in our motives because of that. So here's a critical question for you this morning What is the driving motivation when it comes to serving the Lord? Because this, a, a spe- this is not a spectator sport. You're on the team. You're going to play. What does that look like for you? What does it look like? What's the driving motivation when it comes to serving the Lord? Are you motivated by guilt, fear, regret, religiosity, legalism, pride? And you put those motives down. Those are bad motives. I'd love to help you with that. I'd love to pray with you. Our elders would love to pray with you. I don't know your heart, but I do know that Christians who are driven by anything other than love typically burn out, break down, and get bitter. If we're not motivated by love, we're not going to last long. There are several things that set Christianity apart from all the other world religions, but one of the most important things is that which motivates us. Think about it for just a minute with me. Think about the motivation. What is it that motivates the, the Muslim? Well, it's the fear of Allah's punishment for failing to keep the five pillars. What is it that motivates the Buddhist? Well, the need to create positive karma for the afterlife. What is it that motivates the Scientologist? The need for self-discovery by auditing past lives. And we could go on and on and on through all the world religions. The question this morning is, what is it it that motivates you as a Christian, as a born-again son and daughter of God? What is it that motivates you? And the, the only good answer here is love. This love, our motive is the love of Jesus poured out on the cross, covering over and paying for our sins so that we might live with him forever. This is John 3, 16 and 17. I mean, you guys probably say this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God, did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. What a blessing. God's love has initiated towards us, and now we respond with love for the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then the love of the Trinity is the driving force in everything that we do as disciples of Jesus, as we love the people around us. That's our motive. It's love. It's love. Faith faith does not walk away. Faith does not walk away. When disciples, the disciples are asked by Jesus if they too want to leave him, they, they, they answered for the, Peter answered for the group. He's like, where are we going to go? You're the only game in town, Jesus. We want to play on your team, Jesus. They expressed that they were fully committed to Jesus, knowing he is the way to eternal life. Today, our context is different, but the challenge is the same. Peter took a step of faith that day. He understood the necessary connection between the words of Jesus and the person of Jesus. He's connecting this. To receive Christ is to receive his word. To embrace Jesus is to embrace the truth. They're always taken together. Pe- Peter knew how his life had been changed by Jesus, and this was enough to make, his, uh, make him confident that he would not walk away from Jesus. He had believed on the Son of God. His life was forever changed. See, that's faith and it's experience. It's faith. I believe, and so I'm going to do. I'm going to engage. I believe the truth about Jesus, so now I'm going to do something with it. You're on the team. When are you going to start playing? Okay? It's our inward conviction that Jesus is who he claims to be and our experience is one of a changed life and a new heart. Are you saved by grace this morning? Are you? Are you walking with Jesus today? I want to ask you this morning as we go to prayer What's your position on the team? What's your role? Where are you playing? What are you doing? Remember, church is not a spectator sport. Everybody plays. Everybody contributes. Our motives matter to God. Our faith has feet. Our faith goes. So I want to invite you this morning to respond by the message, to the message by joining um, in, in singing when we, when we start to sing in a moment why not you just lift up your heart? If, you, if, you, if you're blessed by God's word today, would you just lift up your heart in singing? If your heart is heavy this morning because of sin, either your own or the sin of other people in your life, I'd invite you just to, just to stay seated if you need to just pray. Or you know, would you come and, and find me or one of our elders? We'd love to pray with you and pray for you and pray for that situation. But if you're here this morning and you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, I just want to invite you this morning to come and talk with me, even while we're worshiping, even while the songs are playing. I would, I would love to talk with you. It would be my pleasure to introduce you to Jesus this morning. So uh, let's bow our heads before the Lord, and let's go to prayer this morning. Father, we just thank you for your word again. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who uh, explains and interprets and helps us to understand your word. And Lord, I, I pray that we go beyond the understanding, we go beyond the listening and the hearing and, and the taking in, but that as we take your word in, you would do a work in us today that would make us active with your word. You, you called us to a partnership with you in ministry. You are the driving force. You are the power. You are the lead. And we get to come alongside you and participate in what you're doing in the world. And we just counted a joy and a, and a pleasure and a privilege. Lord, would you mo- move our hearts and motivate us? We ask in your name. Amen. We believe that God's love is initiated towards us, and now we respond with love for the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The love of the Trinity is the driving force behind everything we do as disciples of Jesus. Look at the world around us. We look at the mission of Jesus that he's called us to, and we agree with Peter's assessment this morning. Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life, and we have believed, we've come to know you are the Holy One of God. May the Lord move every one of us to action this week. May He motivate our hearts by His Spirit to assure us by His Word. May we be found faithful in this evil day and boldly preach the gospel to all the nations until He comes. Amen. So be it. A Road Church, you are sent